0: Me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Growing up in church, we sang children's songs throughout the children's ministry programs. Often, children's songs in Sunday school and children's church are Simple tunes, catchy tunes with lyrics intended to teach a biblical truth simply. And one of the songs that I remember was the song, Oh, Be Careful. You know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe you probably do. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, was one verse. Then there was another verse. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. And then there was the, oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. There were still two more. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. I remember singing that song again and again. Oh, be careful, little eyes, little ears, little tongue, little hands, little feet. And as we open our Bibles to James chapter 3, the message is titled, Oh, be careful, little tongue." The passage became a focus in my life when I was in high school. In high school, I, I think I was a junior senior at the time. When I was a sophomore, our, our church that my dad pastored had started a small Christian school. And my junior senior year was when this event took place. We were on a break and something happened with a younger student at the school, and when it did, it angered me, and I responded angrily saying some harsh and unkind words. And the student responded, I could tell the younger student was hurt, was offended, he was, he, he felt poorly about the unkind things that I said. And as a young man who was sensitive to what I, I was convicted about, home, hadn't yet spoken to the authorities at length about it at school, hadn't yet spoken at length to my dad about it who was homesick at the time, and I, I was scared about what that would mean for me, but even though I had not yet spoken to them, it wasn't what they said later but the conviction of the Holy Spirit that worked in my heart. And I knew this passage, I went home, and I opened my Bible to James 3, and I just began writing it again and again in, in a notebook, until I could pretty much recite the chapter from memory. Now, if you know me very well at all, my wife could attest to this, now when I get angry, I'm usually very quiet. And that's on purpose. I do not want to say something in anger that I will regret later on. I want to be careful that my words do not hurt and offend. But that's a very difficult challenge, isn't it? And James deals with that some here. It was perhaps at that point more than any other in my life that I recognized how a moment, a word, one angry outburst can damage and destroy. Listen to James's description in James 3, beginning in verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same. Is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear out figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water And fresh. Before we get into the concept of the tongue, I want you to notice the context of James 3. He begins with a command speaking to believers. He says, My brethren, and he warns believers not to engage in teaching lightly. You might read the translation before you, My brethren, be not many masters, and wonder what in the world is James talking about? This is exactly the warning of James 3, verse 1. He wants believers to take seriously this idea of being teachers among God's family. That's the idea here of be not many masters. Why does he warn against this? Why does he warn that that we ought to not take lightly the responsibility of teaching the word? It's for this reason, those who speak the word also have greater responsibility to live the word in word and life. Those who are teachers of the word have a greater responsibility before God to live out the word in their lives and in their words. Those who speak the word are more accountable. So he says, don't engage in teaching lightly. You should not and I should not take up a position in the ministry of God, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, whether in uh, our context today you have Sunday school teachers and children's church teachers and and teen teachers and so on and so forth you and I should never engage that opportunity lightly because with that responsibility comes accountability this truth though I want you to notice does not mean that those who speak the word are more insulated from temptation well God's given you greater responsibility and with that comes great accountability you are more accountable to live out the word in word and in deed so you're going to have greater insulation from temptation no that's not true Notice how James puts himself right among that crowd. When he says, my brethren, have not the... I, I'm sorry, jump back to chapter 3. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we... He's not saying we all, we, we all have greater um, condemnation. When he says we, he's saying we who are teachers. We who have taken up that call of God we have greater condemnation. We are more accountable. But he also says, we, those of us who are teachers, are not more insulated from temptation. We we don't have a strength necessarily that is more than others. He says, for in many things we, those of us who are teachers, offend all. James says, hey, I'm a man just like you are. I am a part of the human race just like you are. I have struggles. I have temptations. I have weaknesses just like you. This idea of, in many things we offend all. James isn't saying, hey, we teachers, we're, we're offensive. We just go about causing offense all the time. It's part of the job description. That's not what he means here when he says in many things we offend all he means that we experience common weaknesses just like you it it literally means to fail the word offend it identifies not a fatal flaw but a misstep that hinders spiritual progress James says look I face the same difficulties the same obstructions to growing in Christ that you face. I struggle with the same kind of things. I, I deal with the same kind of flesh. I deal with the same kind of weaknesses. James says, I, I'm a part of that group. I'll be the first to admit that I have weaknesses, I fail, I, I've made mistakes. I've sinned, and I do today. Even after the experience I told you about earlier in high school, when I sat down and wrote out this passage again and again and again, I can tell you that to this day I still react to situations and experiences at times with angry, unkind words. I I still struggle again and again with my tongue. But as James goes on, from, he speaks to all of us about the tongue, and he reveals that spiritual maturity can be measured by whether or not one sins by his or her words. He says, "If any offend not in the name is a perfect man, complete, spiritually mature." the reality is we like to define spiritual maturity in other words we like to decide what makes somebody spiritually mature and what doesn't and if i were to go around the room not putting you on the spot and if we were all honest we would probably identify ourselves as spiritually mature i mean that's just our human nature yeah i'm spiritually mature I, I'm I'm growing spiritually. I'm progressing. But how do you define spiritual maturity? James says that this is one of those measures. What we do with our tongue. So let me ask you this evening: How well do you manage your tongue? How well do you? restrain that little flappy thing between the roof and the bottom of your mouth before you answer think about what the tongue is and what it does and that's what that's what James talks to us about in James 3 verses 1 through 12 he tells us what the tongue is he tells us what the tongue does notice these things First, what the tongue is. James reveals that the tongue, number one, is a little member. In verse number five, he says, even so the tongue is a little member. And when we see that, we would think, well, little equates to insignificant. If something is little, it's not It's not powerful. It doesn't have a lot of strength. It can't accomplish or do much. Little means insignificant, but James says the opposite is true. It is a little member, but it is very significant. That's why he uses these illustrations in verses 3 and 4. You think of the bridle in the horse's mouth. It's that little tool compared to the size of a horse can control can guide can direct the horse in the direction that the rider wants to go the helm of a ship connected to the rudder is in comparison to the size of the ship a small piece of the mechanic and yet Wherever the captain of the ship wants to go, all he has to do is turn that helm, and the entire ship will turn that direction. So though the tongue is a little member, it is not insignificant. It's very significant. Notice, secondly, he says, the tongue is a fire, verse number 6. And the idea here is not that controlled fire in your fireplace at home. This is a damaging, destructive, deadly force. In verse number 6, he says as well that it is a world of iniquity. One Bible commentator said it this way, It is as though all the wickedness in the whole world were wrapped up in that little piece of flesh. It's been said that there are very few, if any, sins that are committed in which the tongue is not involved in some way. You think about that. You begin to think even some of the maybe sins that you can remember you've committed. Think through that situation. I, I think likely you'll find the tongue was involved at some point in some way. He says that the tongue, verse number 6, is set on fire of hell. Set on fire of hell. The idea here is the evil of the tongue is absolutely devilish. It's of Satan. Satan's temptation in the Garden of Eden was a deception of words. Jesus called the devil a liar from the beginning and the father of lies he uses deception even today as one of the ways that he attacks us in verse number eight it is an unruly evil he describes the tongue as unrestrainable because it is untamable consider this in light of the illustrations of verses three and four i don't want you to miss this Paul describes the bridle, that bit in the horse's mouth, that gives direction. But let me ask you a question. Is the bit what is in control of the horse? No. What is? The rider. And doesn't he say that? Verse number three. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us and we turn about the whole body the bit is a little tool that's used but the bit isn't in control who's in control? the rider is the horse doesn't obey the bit the horse obeys the rider think about the helm of the ship is the helm in control? thank you Brooklyn no the helm isn't in control Michael no the helm isn't in control. Who or what is in control? He calls it the governor. What is that? The, the captain of the ship. The helm is the tool that he uses, but the governor, the captain, is in control. So if you think about it from that perspective, maybe you've read this passage in the past, and yes, you've connected a bit with the tongue and the helm with the tongue, but you've failed to connect the controller. The tongue is unrestrainable because it's untainable. It is difficult to control. But let's stop and ask the question, who or what is in control? How well do you manage your tongue? Friends, the reality is the tongue isn't in control. Now, we just said it is set on fire of hell. It's it's evil and it's absolutely devilish perhaps if we struggle with our tongues we'd have to admit that there at least are times when the devil's in control not that we can say well the devil made me do it No, we have the power from God to to do what is right but we can, as believers in Jesus Christ, according to Romans chapter 6, yield our members, which the tongue is one of those, as servants of unrighteousness unto sin. Who or what is in control? He tells us the tongue can no man tame. It's unrestrainable because it's untainable. So if the reality is that you and I cannot tame our tongues what's the answer who or what is in control if Romans chapter 6 tells us that we can yield our servants as members of unrighteousness unto sin Paul says the flip of that is what instead yield your members as servants of righteousness unto God If you want to manage your tongue well, the reality is certainly the devil can't be in control. But a close second to that is you cannot be in control. You've heard it said, and you've probably told your children, maybe others you've been around this at times, you've told them, think before you speak. That's a good rule. But how many times have you and I spoken without thinking, without giving a lot of thought? Have you ever been in that situation where there is just a sudden reaction? That sudden reaction might be fear. That sudden reaction might be anger. That sudden reaction might be elation. And you just reacted verbally before really even thinking. Have you ever been there? Yeah, absolutely. God has to be in control. The Holy Spirit. It's an unruly evil. Beyond that, James says in verse number 8, it's full of deadly poison. And if you think about what he's just said, it's unremable. The reality that it's full of deadly poison becomes all the more dangerous. We can't control it. Like that venomous snake Who instinctually will, will lash out at a tree branch that you'll hold toward it or, or even when a scientist or someone who works with snakes Takes that venomous snake and is preparing to make the anti-venom You know what they use to make the anti-venom, right? The actual venom What do they do with that snake? They'll take that snake by the neck and force its mouth onto a jar that has some type of cloth or something over the top of the jar. And as soon as that snake's teeth go through that cloth or whatever it is, what starts happening? The venom starts coming. The snake doesn't have a ton of control per se. It's an instinctual reaction. Your tongue... When you react in your flesh, it's full of deadly poison, and that deadly poison is going to come out and it's going to poison everything. In fact, uh, he'll go on and talk about that we'll see in a few moments. But I want to give you one more truth about what the tongue is, and it's what he speaks of in verses 9 through 12. The tongue is simply inconsistent, it's inconsistent. He says, on one hand, we bless God to speak well of, to bless. And on the other hand, we curse to execrate or to doom men who are made in the image of God. And by the way, this reveals the Bible doctrine that should guide our interaction with our fellow man. What should guide how we treat and interact with others? The reality all men are made in the image of God. We teach our children regularly. We don't talk about other people that way because that person is someone made in the image of God. You're not going to call your sibling by that name because your sibling is made in the image of God. We're not going to talk about people in in ways that would be unkind, in ways that would be hateful, in ways that would be untrue, or whatever it may be, because that person is made in the image of God. And that's why he goes through this description in verses 9 through 12. You would not expect... Salty and fresh water at the same place. You wouldn't expect bitterness and sweetness at the same place. But if it's true that no man can tame the tongue, that the tongue is an unruly evil, the reality is that that bitter side, that salty side, is present in all of us. What makes the difference? Let me give you an Old Testament illustration when Moses and the people of Israel were had just crossed the Red Sea and they were traveling through the wilderness they went three days without water they started complaining remember and God brought them to a place where it was a stream of water and the people began drinking but they said this is Marah it's what bitter And God showed Moses a tree, and Moses took the tree and threw it into the bitter waters. And what happened to the waters? They became sweet. What made the difference? The tree. What makes the difference for you and I with a tongue that's an unruly evil that's set on fire of hell that no man can tame? What makes the difference between the salty and the sweet? the bitter and the sweet the old rugged cross the tree if you're a child of god the holy spirit of god indwells you and you've been given the power of god to do what's right before salvation you're a slave to sin and the passions of the flesh after salvation you're You have a choice in the matter. You can know that your old man is crucified. You can reckon it to be true, and you can yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The tree made all the difference. Think about these Bible truths, just some scriptures about... Our words and our tongue. The Bible says in Proverbs ten, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. The tongue of the just is as choice silver, the heart of the wicked is little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. Proverbs 12:25 Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. Proverbs 16:24 Pleasant words are as in honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Proverbs 18:21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. This is what the tongue is. The story is told among Jewish rabbis of a Jewish rabbi who once told one of his servants to go and buy some food for him in the market. And the servant returned home and presented the rabbi with a tongue. The next day, the rabbi told the servant to go to the market and buy some bad food. I don't know why he would want that, but that's what he told his servant. The servant went to the market, he returned and once again he presented the rabbi with a tongue. And the rabbi asked the servant, "Yesterday I told you to get good food. Today bad. both times you came with the same thing, a tongue. Why?" And the servant answered and said, "Good comes from it and bad comes from it. When the tongue is good, there is nothing better. But when the tongue is bad, there is nothing worse." Now true that is. Think not only about what the tongue is, but let's briefly think about what the tongue does. Along with showing what the tongue is, James reveals what the tongue does. In verse number five, it boasts. This is big, grand, arrogant, egotistical, grandiose speech. It's ironic, isn't it? That right after telling us it's a little member, yet it boasts big or great things and how true it is the pride of man is often seen in what he says in verse number 5 he also says it burns it's set on fire of hell it, it, it burns it, it's that destructive damaging deadly fire even though it's so little yet it kindles great things in August of 2004 a a fire, a forest fire known as the Bear Fire in California uh, Compared to some forest fires was not that large It burned about 11,000 acres Destroyed 86 residences And created about 26 million dollars in damages But what was interesting was that fire that burned so much Started... ...from a spark that came out of a riding lawnmower... ...while someone was mowing their lawn. That small spark... ...was all that was needed to cost and create all that damage and destruction. It defiled the body. He says that of the tongue in verse number 6. The idea here is that it corrupts and it pollutes everything also the next part it sets the course of nature on fire goes along with that the idea is it deals with a a cycle think of a wheel that has several different spokes but all those spokes come together at one point right in the center that's this idea that the tongue is a cycle like that in that it can it can be destructive in so many different areas think of it relationships can be damaged and destroyed by the tongue parents can hurt their children children can hurt their parents friends can hurt friends neighbors can hurt neighbors Coworkers can hurt co-workers employees can hurt employees and vice versa all with the tongue wars can start over something said Misunderstandings that, that grow into a great mountain can start by some small misunderstanding of something said. All of this can be done with the tongue. Listen to what the, the writer of Proverbs said in verses 20, chapter 26, verses 18 and 19. As a madman who casteth firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man that deceiveth his neighbor and saith, Am I not in sport?'" I'm just joking. But even something that one thinks that way of can cost and create so much destruction and damage. How well do you manage your tongue? Let's suggest six questions that you should consider related to the use of your tongue. Number one, and we spoke of this one earlier, but it's this. Who's in control? You say, well, I'm in control of my tongue. Well, that's a problem because no one can tame the tongue. I don't want to be in control of this thing. I want to pray like the psalmist did. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. My goal, as he says in chapter 1, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Who's in control? Second question you should ask yourself related to the use of your tongue. Is it truth? In other words, what you say. When you're speaking, is it truth? Ephesians 4.25, Paul says, speak every man truth with his neighbor, providing things honest in the sight of all men. What we say should be true. I shared with our Bible study group a few Wednesday nights ago uh, reading an account for school where it's been established through study that the average person lies two times in a 10-minute conversation. You say, "That's incredible. Let me ask, how many times have you lied today? Pastor, what do you mean? Well, let, let's give you an example. Did you come to church today and someone asked you how you were and you lied? You weren't really doing real good, but you said, Oh, I'm fine. What is that? Well, I, I don't want to complain. I don't wanna I don't wanna sound like, you know, God's not been good to me. If you're doing poorly and you tell someone you're doing fine, you lied. Simple and plain as that. Is it truth? Thirdly, is it loving? Hey, that's the caveat to truth, isn't it? Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love. 1 Corinthians 13, I can have all the spiritual gifts in the world. I can have the tongue of men and of angels. I can be eloquent in these... Beautiful words just flow from my lips every time I open my mouth but if there's no love what is nothing nothing is it loving number four is it constructive I don't mean constructive in the sense of constructive criticism does it build people Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. What is corrupt communication? Well, read the rest of the verse. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that which builds up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So what is corrupt communication? It's anything that doesn't build up. If what you're saying is not being said to build somebody else up, then Paul says don't say it. Number five, is it gracious? Ephesians four twenty nine hits on that, but even more so Col- Colossians four verse six. Paul says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Do you know the people who get that backwards? Their speech is seasoned with grace and always salty? That's not the prescription. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Who's in control? Is it truth? Is it loving? Is it constructive? Is it gracious? And then finally, is it life-giving? Is it life-giving? Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 11, the writer of Proverbs says something to this effect. The, The mouth or the tongue of the righteous is a well of life well of life. What is that? Well, you think of how necessary water is for life. When God is in control of our tongue and the words we are saying are the right kind of words, it gives life to those who hear. Too often we spout death. What we say destroys and hurts that's not the way we should be. Who's in control? Is it truth? Is it loving? Is it constructive? Is it gracious? Is it life-giving? If our words, if our speech, if our tongues are not being used for these purposes, then we need to take some honest reflection of what we're saying, of how we're using our tongues and our mouths. If you're a child of God this evening, yes, the tongue no man can tame. But through salvation, by his Holy Spirit, God has given you the power, the resource you need to yield your tongue to the power of the Holy Spirit. Do so. When you fail, because you will, in many things we offend all, we fail. Quickly confess to God and others. If you hurt someone with something you say, confess it to them. Ask for forgiveness. How well do you manage your tongue? It's an important, essential part of our lives. It's such a little thing, but yet it is significant. And this is a measure of spiritual growth and maturity. How do you manage your tongue?